Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Tom Cousineau about The Great Gatsby and about literary criticism in general. Inspired by this week's conversation, I wanted to recommend to you Canon Classics. If you've never seen the Canon Classics, you can head to canonpress.com as we work through all the classics in literature, writing Christian worldview guides to accompany them, and to introduce new folks to the classics. So go find those if you want to apply Christian wisdom to classic works of art. Without further ado, meet Dr. Tom Cousineau. Now welcoming on Dr. Tom Cousineau. Did I get it right? You did, but uh, I prefer Mr. Mr. Cousineau. All right. That's a controversial subject now, but I know Mr. is fine. (laughs) All right. Well, you did a lot of hard work. You know, it's not not so bad to hear it after all. Uh, So, Mr. Tom Cousineau, thank you so much for coming on this week. You taught at Washington College in the literature program. Is that correct? Oh, that's right. Yes. For how many years? Over on the Eastern Shore. How many years did I teach? Oh my God, it was probably about 40 years or so okay. <laughs> until, um, until I retired uh, about eight years ago. Okay. And before that, my wife and I would teach it at the University of Paris and, and at other French universities. Oh man. Okay. Well, that's why you say Rene Girard's name so much cooler than I do. So, so much better than you did. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sound like the plebe and, and, and next to me, on. you're going to sound like a genius. So right, well, um, I'll try not to throw too much French in. <laughs> please do. Go please ahead. do. That adds. It adds. So this week, what I really wanted to talk about is essentially literary criticism. What is it? Is it for everyone? You know, why is it important? And basically the what I wanted to jump off of was something I think everyone's read, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, The Great Gatsby. I think everybody, most everyone's mm-hmm. read it if they haven't been under a rock for, it's almost 100 years old. Um, I think it came out in 1925. And if they haven't read it, they've most likely seen the movie that came out a few years ago with Leonardo DiCaprio. So I thought, what a great, th- this one everybody knows, and we'll kind of get into the weeds eventually. And so I, I found Mr. Tom's work online in, in a couple of footnotes from some great lit crit journals, essentially. And he had an essay called The Great Gatsby, Romance or Holocaust. And I read it and I immediately started to hunt down his email address to let him know how much I appreciated it and wondered if we could have a conversation here on the podcast. So here you are. Thank you again for offering me your time. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Oh, Jake, I mean, it, it's a great pleasure for me. I can't tell you. It's, it's been quite a while. I mean, that essay that gosh, it goes back to a, a paper that I read at a, a René Girard conference quite a few years ago and then was published in their journal called Contagion. It goes back uh, several years. Anyway, it's been a while since I've thought about uh, Girard, since I've uh, reread uh, Gatsby in relation to Girard, which I've been doing the, uh, the last, uh, last couple of days. And also today, because I misremembered the time that we were going to start, I had, <laughs> I had, two, ex- I had two extra hours, and I, I used them very, very profitably reading back through The Great Gatsby. Okay, good. And it's, you know, it's, just, it's an endlessly fascinating novel. And um, I know if I could uh, put in just a couple of words, perhaps, if I'm not interrupting no, you. No, please, when you please. The, the, when you mentioned the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, version of film of uh, of Gatsby that uh, we saw rather rather late in my life, and actually I saw it in Paris several years ago when it came out. 
all these French kids who were who were just so excited about it. But for me, the uh, the much earlier uh, version was with uh, Robert Redford, okay, which you may not know about, which also came out when we were living in, and teaching in Paris back in the early seventies. The party scenes there. And when I say party, it's it's a New England, it's P-A-R-T-Y for sure. The big party <laughs> scenes are filmed on uh, Mrs. Astor's estate, which is, I forget the name of it, but it's up on up on Bellevue Avenue. We lived off Bellevue Avenue. Oh, wow. Very close. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And if you wouldn't mind for us, could, could you just give us an introduction to the book and its author to start? If I were in a, in a nutshell to tell you a bit about say, F. Scott Fitzgerald, I think, you know, to give you the really, really salient details yeah. that he was from uh, Minnesota, I guess, I think from, from Minneapolis, I'm not quite sure of that, yep. but from somewhere out there, I don't know if you would call, I would call that the far west, maybe for you, it's, it's <laughs> not, you're, out, you're out in Idaho and I'm in Maryland, so yeah, we, have, the Midwest. We, have a, we have a different perspective. That's right. But um, I would say, and very much like the other writer that I associate with Fitzgerald is uh, Jack Kerouac, okay. which might seem really surprising to you. Uh, for me, as a, as a Roman Catholic myself, and ethnically, to be sure, I'm Irish on my Irish American on my mother's side, uh, French Franco American or Quebecois on my, on my father's side. What they have in common is that they were both ethnic Catholics because Fitzgerald, though he's Irish, Irish American in part at least, but who went to Princeton as as Jack Kerouac went to uh, went went to Columbia. So uh, Fitzgerald, who who went to Princeton rather than to Notre Dame, for example, where he would have been among his fellow Catholics, I think the the important thing to know about Fitzgerald is that. He lived his adult life in an environment to which he was not really all that well adapted by his background. He says, I believe it's in a letter to a friend of his, he says, I could be the king of Scotland. I could be the king of Scotland and descended from a line of French kings, the Plantagenets. This is when he's at Princeton, I think. And he says, I would still be a parvenu. For them, I would still be a newcomer. I would still be someone who doesn't belong. And in The Great Gatsby, there's a wonderful line. I wrote down a couple of these uh, when Nick is, uh, is looking back. It's in the final chapter, just the last couple of pages. And he says that all of us, all the main characters in that novel, we were all Westerners. Mm. And we had some defect that made us, say, peculiarly unadaptable to life on the East Coast. And I think, you know, again, biographically, that's you know, probably the uh, a central fact or a central experience, kind of an existential, highly personal experience uh, that Fitzgerald himself had. By the way, his name was not F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was not, he was a child. He was not, he's Catholic, of course. He was not baptized F. Scott Fitzgerald. Do you know his first name? Francis. Yes, yeah, Francis, Francis. And you can imagine, I mean, if, the, if he published The Great Gatsby by Francis Fitzgerald, or maybe even better, <laughs> J James Gatz by Francis Fitzgerald. Right. And just, you know, because everyone knows that Gatsby changed his name. His real name is James Gatz. He called, changed, changed it to Jay Gatsby. 
And, and then uh, there's a parallel between what everyone knows about Gatsby and what hardly anyone ever really notices about Fitzgerald is that as an author, he changed his name and he became, you know, in his own eyes, as he talks about this in his letters, that he's no longer, he no longer bears the burden of the man that he was. He has now freed himself of the man that he was and he has become a writer. And that transition, that elevation from being the ordinary, you know, Mr. Nobody from Nowhere, as it were, a famous line in the novel, right. to becoming the, the really illustrious writer that he, that he is, that was signaled by a, a change in name, that alteration of his name. He's signaling a, a shift away from his ethnicity in the way he's hiding his, his origins, his stand-in, his uh, mouthpiece, as it were, in The Great Gatsby, he being Fitzgerald. His mouthpiece, his uh, narrator, is uh, Nick Carraway. Right. Uh, Carraway, I guess it's a name of English origin. It certainly isn't. I don't recognize it as, a, as an Irish name. I was in contact a couple of months ago with a young woman, an African-American woman. I, when I say young again, I'm 75, so there's, there's a good deal of breadth there. Anyway, uh, young by my standards, an African-American woman named Janet Savage, who's published a book called Jay Gatsby, Black Man in White Face. And her thesis is that what the great Gatsby is really about it's about the racial anxieties of the 1920s and so on, of which there are certain signs, to be sure, in the, in the novel, and that, it's, uh, that the prototype of Gatsby is a young black man, but I'd say of, of mixed ancestry, so he appears to be white and tries to pass as white. And, and she said that there's a lot of resistance within the Fitzgerald community to that idea. And I'm not a member of the Fitzgerald community by any means. I said, hey, listen, you know, I have no problem with the idea, um, except I think it's overly restrictive. And what I like about it and how it, it fits very well with what I, what I think the novel is about is about what we call, do we still call it passing, you know, being able to pass from one social group to another, say from one social class to a, uh, to a, to a higher social class. And when, uh, when uh, Janet Savage talks about race, about uh, racial anxieties and so on, uh, certainly Fitzgerald uh, suffered from uh, ethnic anxieties and I'm sure, when he was at Princeton, and I'm sure Kerouac the same thing at, uh, when he was at, at Columbia, which would not have happened to him if he had gone to Boston College by any means. The little bit that I know about uh, F. Scott's life and just character is uh, he was a man riddled with anxiety, period. Was, uh, yes, very much so. No matter what qualifier you put in front of it, he, he definitely was someone, it's funny we talk about the name change, but he comes off as someone who is totally named Francis. And I feel like, and, and Hemingway treated him like it too. Yeah. In terms of the, just the basic plot of The Great Gatsby, you know, even just pillar points, do you mind introducing us to that? The way in which throughout the novel, uh, Fitzgerald himself and through Nick Carraway plays with or juggles the chronology of the, of the novel so that the, everything has happened already yes. at, the, at, the very, at the very beginning. Right. When uh, Nick Carraway introduces himself and talks about having first met Gatsby and the foul dust that rose up around him and so on. So you know that things have come to a bad end. 
And a point that I make in my, my writing, and I've, I've written a couple of different pieces about Gatsby, is that what I find really interesting is that just as Gatsby tries to hide the real story of his life, the fact that his name is James Gatsby, he comes from a, a modest background, and uh, the, the, he, he tries to hide that between his claim that he went to Oxford, that he's, uh, he was given a, a military decoration by the country of Montenegro, and, and, <laughs> and so on. And that, that Nick Carraway, let's say, aids and abets him in that, in that way, in the sense that Nick never tells us um, until much later in the, in the novel. It's much later in the novel, especially when Gatsby's father appears after Gatsby has died, uh, that he tells us that we get a sense of um, uh, when uh, Nick, Nick says, oh, uh, Mr. Gatsby, and Gatsby's father says, my name is Gats, and on from there. So he's a parvenu. He's a person of uh, a very modest means who, um, who meets a man named uh, Dan Cody, it is, uh, who's, what, who's made lots of money in, in Alaska, I think it is, maybe in copper mining or gold mining, whatever it is. And who takes him as a as a model? He he works uh, aboard uh, Dan Cody's uh, yacht for a couple of years and develops some of the the manners, I suppose, of people from the the upper class. And um, and then when he uh, he comes east, he meets a man named Maya Wolfsheim, who's Jewish, and whom Gatsby tells Nick was the the man who fixed the nineteen nineteen World Series, <laughs> which is not literally true. It was a group of men, but. Anyway, it fits in very well with this. Uh, Nick, Car- Nick says, oh, that, that just, it took my breath away. Tom Buchanan takes his breath away, too. He says, he took my breath away. I thought there was just something that happened. He says, I knew about the fixing of the 1919 World Series, but I thought it was just something that happened. The idea that one man was able to do something like that. One man was able to play with the confidence of 50,000 people. That just utterly astonished me. Words to that effect. Yeah. He falls in with a person, Gatsby, a person who's very, very powerful, who has is very clever and is is involved in, in underworld activities, which he becomes involved in as well. And so his what the point I want to make is that his Gatsby's relationship with uh, first of all with Dan Cody and then then with Maya Wolfsheim is one that's highly beneficial to him. They're people that he admires greatly and that take him on. As a protege, and the problem though is is that Gatsby, and this is very much a Rene Girard idea that we get our desires by imitating the desires of other people. The other person whose desire he imitates, of course, is Tom Buchanan. But kind of the mentoring that he received, the mentoring that Gatsby received from Dan Cody and Maya Wolfsheim, becomes the uh, the rivalry that he um, in the the conflict, the very violent confrontation. To which it eventually leads with um, with Tom with Tom Buchanan. Can I, if I could say one other thing about Buchanan again, it's you know there's, there's just there's so much going on in that novel. This uh, Fitzgerald himself said when H.L. Um, uh, Mencken read the uh, the manuscript, or maybe it was the published novel. I'm not sure. He said, "Listen, this is no more than a glorified anecdote," which Fitzgerald was rather hurt by, <laughs> and he said, "Yes." You know, it's it's the, the great American novel now, right? But at the time, glorified anecdote. Which is, but that's and totally we, Mencken, though, and that's what I love about Mencken. It is, yeah, yeah. He just you know, tells it like it is. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, if yeah. That's, if that's the right, 
And so Fitzgerald writes to his friend Edmund Wilson, and he says, yeah, you know, I kind of see what Mencken means. He says, there's no, there's no emotional background at the very height of it, a line, a line like that. Um, the, uh, the very height presumably being in the, the reunion between Gatsby and Daisy, which you know, doesn't really come off all that powerfully or is not really presented with much directness at all. But the, uh, the point that I've made in a, a number of places is that there's any number of emotional backbones in that novel, but it's, as I said in the, the title, as I suggested in the title of the essay that you read, it's more in that, in that word that's mentioned only, only once, the word Holocaust, at the end of, is it the end of chapter seven, I think, where Nick has come to Gatsby's mansion, he sees Gatsby's corpse floating in the, in the pool. Uh, they're carrying Gatsby's. He's helping to carry Gatsby's body to the into the house, and uh, they walk. They see the the corpse of, um, Wilson. of George Wilson. Yep. And he says the Holocaust was complete. Now, to be sure, it's not the final solution. It's not Hitler, the Nazis, and so on. That comes a couple of decades later. He means Holocaust in the sense of uh, in the religious meaning, the biblical meaning of that word, the the making of a, of an offering which is a, a very, very incongruous word to use. You know, the, the famous incongruity is when Nick Carraway asked Gatsby where he's from. He says the Middle West. He says, where in the Middle West? He says San Francisco, which is a, is a, is a conundrum, I guess we could say, in the, in the novel. But, but calling the murder of Gatsby and the suicide of George Wilson a holocaust is taking things a, a little too far. And my theory is that that's why um, Fitzgerald sets up the funeral of Gatsby, at which no one appears, because no one coming to Gatsby's funeral is a kind of holocaust, is a kind of way of, uh, of abandoning, of a, well, very clearly, uh, of abandoning him, rather than expelling the scapegoat from the community. The community doesn't show up right. for the sacrifice of the, the sacrifice of the scapegoat. I forget the director's name of the most recent film adaptation. I think it was 2012, 2013 with DiCaprio. Is that a DiCaprio? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm, oh, you know, it's that Australian guy. Oh, I, I know um, Bo, Bo's or something. Yes. He also did Romeo and Juliet. I think they essentially captured to some degree, you know, I, I'm ill-equipped. I didn't see the Robert Redford, Great Gatsby, but it seems to me the glitz and the glam and the parties, atmosphere, and and everything else kind of captured what I think everybody seems to, as a baseline, and when they read The Great Gatsby, this is what they enjoy. It's the the large parties, you know, the, the dichotomy of, of what uh, I believe Jordan says, it's the large parties, but they're always so intimate, but they're big and loud, and there's music and famous people, and you, you don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who Gatsby is for a little, you know, for the first maybe uh, 20% of the read. We hear lots of rumors. So that adds to the intrigue. And it seems to, I, I thought, capture well what we love about this. And then, of course, there's unrequited love with Gatsby, James Gatz, who you mentioned, and Nick Carraway's cousin Daisy, who's now married to Tom Buchanan that you mentioned. And, and so. Yeah. It's a sort of all of these elements that I wonder <laughs> that I wonder at times is sort of the indictment on maybe most the popular American culture to some degree, where 
I love H.L. Mencken's response because he just, he could see that movie and just not be moved by most of that, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just, you know, really see through it, cut through it with just the sharpest knife. So what in your experience do you see people, like when people talk about what does this mean or what makes this the classic that it is, the great American novel that it is? Mm-hmm. In terms of most people's eyes, so not necessarily your particular thesis, but how do you see most people understanding this novel? Well, I, I think that most people do respond to it in terms of the uh, the romantic element yeah. of this this idea. And of course, it's Gatsby's desire, his dream of Daisy is translated into the American dream. There's a lecture which is on YouTube by a woman named uh, Maureen Corrigan. Yes, she wrote. So we read on is what it's called. Playing off that. So we read on. So playing right, off so that last page. On. So we beat on. Yeah. Uh, the lecture that she gives, I think it was at the Library of Congress that's on YouTube. Her way of reading the novel is more or less, I'd say, the, the usual or the, or the romantic way yes. of reading it. Yes, it is. It, it might be interesting for your listeners to, um, to go onto YouTube and to bring up uh, uh, Maureen Corrigan Gatsby and Cousineau Gatsby, and they really get two, you know, kind of a dialectic, I suppose, in a way, two very different ways of, of reading it. And the Girardian reading that I do of the novel, so yes, this would be a good transition, is to look back at that scene at Camp Taylor. It's on page 79, or there are about 79 in, in my edition. And you'll see that she was by far the, the most popular girl, the she Daisy, to be sure was the most popular girl in Louisville. She was pursued by every young man. And all day, the, f- uh, the phone rang off her hook um, with all the young men and the officers then begging to uh, monopolize her time, if only for an hour. So she's the, the, the ideal, not only of Gatsby, but of, uh, of every young man. And kind of a, a summation with the with respect to Gatsby, I would say that his problem, his tragedy, which I don't think Nick Carraway, I'm sure that Nick Carraway doesn't really understand it. His tragedy is that he desires what every other man, every other young man desires. And that's eventually going to get him into trouble. He's going to eventually lead to violence in one way or another. And I mentioned in connection with that, I was reading a very, very beautiful poem, the profound religious meaning by uh, the Italian poet Petrarch in his, uh, his canzone, his uh, songs to, uh, to Laura, where whoever is speaking to this young man is saying to him that to lead a fulfilling life, something like that, I'm paraphrasing, to lead a fulfilling life, you must learn to place very little value on what everyone else places a great deal of value on. And Gatsby's problem, then, is that he ignores that advice, as it were. There is a, a, a limit, a boundary beyond which he shouldn't go, and he, he, does, he does indeed go, be, go beyond it. With René Girard, then, anyone who's read and who's absorbed and has been influenced, and, and as you said, as we were talking before I began, both of our lives were changed uh, by reading René Girard. It's something that's a remark that you see often. Uh, I see things coming up a lot on Facebook, but um, we would immediately, any Gerardian would notice right away that elision, that, 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 that shift from a group of men 
beholding a green breast to a single man beholding a, a gazing upon a green light. Right. And the connection, the connection that we would make is with the, the Dutch sailors is not with the single figure of Gatsby, but with the officers back at Camp Taylor who were all chasing after Daisy and were all giving her the value then that attracted you. People will say, why in the world was he ever? Someone quote at this conference, they quote Daisy, not a, not a floozy. There's another term for a, an, air, an airheaded woman. And uh, you know, it's, I, I gasped when I heard it. I thought, oh my God, do we still, do we still use words like that? That, uh, that people will wonder, why is Gatsby so attractive? And it's not because of any inherent quality. It's rather the value that's given to her by, and which Gatsby imitates then. Right. One thing, if I could, to, to sort of yeah. get our folks up to speed is we talked a little bit before that um, when I was in college, I was in a Shakespeare class and we read several plays and we read several commentators about the plays. And that was really my first introduction to the works of René Girard and, and his philosophies. And he wrote a book called Theater of Envy. And in contrast to the other commentators, there was this rush of clarity in text itself. So there wasn't a lot of hanging above the text and just saying, there's just something about Hamlet that speaks to us and we're not sure what it means and we're not really sure. You know, it, it was sort of, you just saw the contrast of, of literary critics just throwing words and word vomiting about a text versus mm -hmm. someone who was in the text and telling you what it, you know, using the text to tell you what it means. And that was Rene mm -hmm. Girard for me. And I told you, you know, just even in his introduction, my, my life, you know, I read the, his introduction, then I reread my whole life and just thought, wow, I now understand what happened with all these previous squabbles in my life. I now get it. And he especially has changed how I read literature. And what's interesting in terms of uh, when you said, you know, a Girardian could see in that text is that Gerard, he seems to have uncovered something that a lot of great authors already do and understand, mm -hmm. and that all of us are just now catching up to, thanks to him. You mentioned it's very important for us to see in the Camp Taylor scene that when Gatsby happen, you know, sees Daisy, it's clear that she's you know, the, the most beautiful girl there, but whether that's true or not doesn't matter. What matters is that everyone is uh, giving her the attention, all of the eyes. Right. You know, if, if, cameras, yeah. if cameras add 10 pounds to the person, you know, it's almost like every eyeball on the female adds like 10 points of attractiveness or desirability. Mm -hmm. How is essentially these principles from Rene Girard how, how did they sort of open up The Great Gatsby for you in a way that you hadn't seen before? I first read, so his, uh, his classic work in English is called Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. novel. Yep. The French title is more precise and more, more revelatory. It's called Mensonge Romantique, Verité Romanesque. It has a kind of poetic, it, it is a nice balance between the two. So the mensonge romantique is the romantic lie, and the verité romanesque is the truth that one finds in the, in the novel. And it's in that book then, which was published back in the early 1960s, which I read as a, I think I was an undergraduate at Boston College, um, when, in, in which he proposes, and the term that he uses is mimetic desire. 
mimetic desire as opposed to romantic desire. So it's a um, a deconstruct or demystification yeah. of romantic. Uh, and the term mimetic desire is intended to demystify uh, the idea of romantic desire. And basically, what it means is, as you you would know, I'm sure members of your your audience may not. Uh, the the romantic desire, the idea is that uh, well, when I desire something, I, I desire it, and I'm the I'm the one who desires it. And Jehovah says, no, the reason that we desire is that we're imitating the desire of someone else. Um, what he calls the, the model. So you have the model of desire and the object of desire. Right. And in terms of, of Gatsby, what it means is that the reason that he's attracted to, to Daisy, that she's the object of his desire, is what René Jehovah would call it, it is mediated by a model of desire. The model of desire being the officers at Camp Taylor, and also and um, and also then eventually ultimately Tom Buchanan. The other thing is that in that book, Deceit Desire, in the novel, Girard introduces the the idea of mimetic desire and also of uh, the model of desire. And he goes on; he distinguishes between two kinds of models of desire. There's the external model of desire, which is someone who is just so far away from you, so so superior to you, that you couldn't possibly imagine becoming becoming that person. Um, and so you don't get into a into a, a, a rivalry with that person. And you see that with uh, with my Maya Wolfsheim and also with Dan Cody, that they're just so different from Gatsby. Uh, Cody's much older, uh, uh, Wolfsheim is Jewish and so on, that they don't become rivals at all. But rather, uh, Tom Buchanan becomes what uh, what Gatsby, what uh, uh, Girard would call an internal, as opposed to an external model of desire, an internal model of desire. He's someone that's so close to you that um, it's going to come to a bad end. Someone, someone's going to get killed. In Newport, uh, growing up there and, and caddying, as I told you, across from Hammersmith Farm, which is with... Jack Kennedy and Jackie had their uh, their wedding reception after getting married in my parish church of St. Mary's in, in Port Rhode Island. We lived off Bellevue Avenue and not far from all of those mansions. And I caddied for those people, but I just, I, I just knew there's a famous tennis club there. I saw a famous Australian tennis player there, uh, Rod Laver, when, oh, he was, yeah. when he was just a teenager playing. I used to jump over the back fence to get in there. It's a very exclusive club. And they would never have let me in the front door. And I just, I always remember just being there. These people, you know, like, like what planet did they come from? And what's really, really interesting, and this is where uh, Janet Savage, with her idea of his being a, a black man in a white face, I think it's too simple, too reductive. But the novel is about, you know, the emotional backbone of the, of the novel is in part in the, um, you know, it's not the, the American dream so much as it is the erosion, perhaps, the erosion of the barrier between, uh, say, Bellevue Avenue and Prospect Hill Street, where, where we lived, a very working class, very narrow working class street where we lived, right off big Bellevue Avenue. But that, that distance is diminishing with the result that, and do you remember uh, the book that um, Tom Buchanan is reading? It's the, uh, the rise of the colored empire or empires. Yes. I think it is. It's great fear 
And this idea when you hear the black, what black empires? What's this about black empire? It's a French empire, German, English, whatever, British empire. But the black empires, it sounds very, very sinister, very menacing. Caraway is, is very ambivalent about this whole thing, about the um, working class people who want to, want to elevate themselves, want to enter the upper class. Uh, he's very, very favorable. He's a big fan, big champion of, of Gatsby. But he's very, very harsh with uh, Myrtle Wilson, to, just to take her as the, right. the, the principal example. I don't, have you ever noticed that? Yes, yes. Way? You have. Good for you, yeah. I also, I yeah, it seems to be she is the one who, in terms of the, the, the fundamental worshiper of that vast meretricious and vulgar beauty that he eventually talks about, it seems like she is the, uh, the layman of the, of the Gatsby worship, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, she's Gatsby's double. Right. I would say, but and most readers, I don't think, really get it. I don't know if, if Maureen Corrigan talks about it, but he's very, very, he's, he's such a, a champion. He's so much on the side of Gatsby, but so, so much, I mean, really condemning of Myrtle Wilson. She puts on, she puts on a dress and, and her manners become affected and she's spinning. I don't remember it exactly, but he's very, very ironic in his portrayal of her. So, you know, you have these other people. And, and the other thing, the, the curious thing about that novel, talking about you know, where the emotional backbone is and where, uh, let me backtrack just for a moment. I, I mentioned uh, mimetic desire. The other term that's associated with it, that Gerard popularized and that's central to his work is what he calls the scapegoat mechanism, by which he means, I mean, you take a, a scapegoat narrative, a story like Oedipus the King, where Oedipus is punished, but he was a normal reading. Oedipus is punished, he's expelled. Why? Well, because he did some really, really bad things. He killed, killed his dad and he was sleeping with his mom. Um, and so he's being punished for that. But for Girard, where we should look is not to the person, the scapegoat, but rather the community that's scapegoating him and to see the advantage that the community achieves. And what he says is that since desire is fundamentally violent, because it's always going to lead to rivalry, instead of every member of the community killing each other, they decide in a very ritualistic way, well, let's, let's find one person to kill, and we'll kill that person. And I, I may be the only one who's ever commented on the novel who points out that the, there are three people who get killed in that novel, and it might be my own socioeconomic background that helps me to see, leads me to see this. But um, they're all working class. It's, uh, it's Gatsby, it's George, and it's Myrtle. And they, they all, they all die, die violent deaths. And it, it is a kind, of, a kind of holocaust, which involves not only, not only Gatsby. I see with, with Girard, looking at the novel Gatsby, I, I see the ways in which Gatsby imitates the desires of others. I mean, everything about him, all the, the mansion, the car, there are just so many details. And then the, uh, the, the way in which the erosion of the, the distinction between, you know, where I came from, let's say, where Gatsby came from and where uh, Tom and Daisy came from, the erosion of that boundary. And then in Gerardian terms, really what Gerard would say, I'm sure, and I'm saying it in his place, is that that boundary is reestablished in a very firm way at the end of the novel because there aren't, there aren't any upstarts left. They've died. And 
the purpose of what Gerard calls the scapegoat mechanism, in other words, the community abandoning or punishing in some way its designated victims, the goal is to, to achieve a restoration of order. And remember, Nick says, Tom and Daisy, they were careless people. They create messes and then they retreat back into whatever, what is it, their wealth or something like that. Well, remember, uh, Nick also retreats. He goes back to, the, uh, not to San Francisco, I suppose, but to, uh, to somewhere in the, in the Middle West. There is a, uh, an aura of, of, of peacefulness and an end to that, um, that social instability. Uh, the, an end is put to that erosion of the, of the barrier between the, uh, the upper class and the, and the working class. In terms of uh, one thing, and the Girardian principles help us understand, is that there's a sense in which everyone can share in the, the fun of the parties, but it becomes very clear that you can't share Daisy. Right. As you were saying, the, the, the woman can't be shared. And so if, if these highly right. mimetic people are certain to run into violence when, when that can't be shared, it's either you or him. And then there's going to be violence. And as we see in the novel, there is that sort of scapegoating that happens that kind of puts everything, quote unquote, puts everything right. As in Daisy and Tom, their relationship sort of finds a new stasis and they move on and, and everyone else sort of moves on at the expense of the scapegoat, which turns out to be Gatsby. And one thing I think in your essay that's really helpful in terms of when you read it this way is that uh, we ought to be a bit more suspicious of Nick, who, as you said, he kind of fill, he's a fill-in for Fitzgerald to sort of dictate the happenings of the mm -hmm. novel that have already happened. And we, we ought to become a little bit more suspicious of him as sort of our moral compass throughout the novel. Right, right. Uh, my dissertation director, when I was at University of California at Davis, a man named uh, Thomas Hanzo, he wrote a, uh, he published an essay back in the early 60s, I think in Modern Fiction Studies. You might look him up sometime. And I don't remember the title of his essay, but it was his idea was, his main point was that the center of interest is not Gatsby so much as it is, and I think he may use the phrase, the moral development of Nick Carraway and the idea that uh, Nick has learned something by the end of the novel that he didn't know at the beginning and so on. But that's a very common reading of the, of the novel also. And I, I do disagree with it. And it connects with my disagreement with Bonnet um, Girard about Hamlet. My dissertation director, Tom Hanzo, with respect to Nick, I, I really don't think, I think he obfuscates. I think we, should, we have to be very, very suspicious of him. We have to read between the lines, as it were, and to see that there are just so many indications that the, 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 the most devastating moment in Gatsby's life surely is in the Plaza Hotel, where he thinks that uh, Daisy's going to run off with him. And instead, uh, Tom denounces him as Mr. Nobody from Nowhere. And I think that that anxiety, we talked about social anxiety, is also the anxiety of just of being nobody, of being insignificant, of not counting. And I remember then that Gatsby, when he's showing all his medals and his photograph of himself at Oxford, he says to Nick, now listen, I, I don't want you to think I'm just nobody. Yeah, and right. So that, that fear of, and, and Gatsby... I mean, he is nobody. I mean, we're all nobody in a way, you know, from one point of view or another. What we fear is a, it's a profound, it's a, 
a universal human anxiety of being annihilated, I suppose, of being, of being deprived of the identity that we would like to attribute to ourselves. So Gatsby fashions this identity for himself, and then Nick fashions it throughout the novel in the, in the way in which he, so not only, uh, Gatsby fa- fashions the physical aspect of his identity, his mansion and all of his, the signs of his, of his wealth and his parties and so on. And Nick fashions the language that Gatsby uh, quote unquote speaks because obviously he doesn't, he doesn't really speak it. So lots, lots to be suspicious of. Well, Mr. Tom, okay. thank you so much for giving us your time. Like I said, I very much appreciated your essay and very much look forward to other things that you have coming out. I'll make sure that there's a link to your work here in the show okay. notes. And uh, we'd love to have you come back on and, and tell us more about what you're up to. Well, well okay, but I ask you listeners if they want me back. <laughs> if, they, if they do, I'll come back. <laughs> That's the best thing, though, is you don't ask people what they want. You know what I mean? That's what I learned early. Okay. Well, well, no, as, as long as you're happy with it, I'll, so, I, mean, I, I enjoyed this very much. I hope I hope I didn't enjoy it too much. No, it was very, and, um, I, I greatly appreciate it. And, and, and any discussion on literary criticism is, is something I enjoy. So thank you again. And it, like I said, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah, I'd be very happy to retread. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. Cheers. <laughs>